You can't be neutral on the moving train. I told y'all before. You can't believe everything that your teacher tell you. Who is your teacher? Your teacher just learned what they was taught. How do you know what they was taught was correct? Welcome to You Can't Be Neutral, a political podcast inspired by Howard Zinn and progressive and radical activism, taking a look at society, media, and politics. You can find out more about You Can't Be Neutral at youcan'tbeneutral.com, where you'll find links to all of the episodes. You'll find a link there to send me a message and a link to make a donation. You can make a one-time or recurring donation to keep this and all my podcasts free and independent. First up is a piece published at BuzzFeed.com. This is written by Lola Massington Bonner, and it's titled Inequality and Disparity in the Work World, Seeking and Maintaining Employment as a Black Trans Woman. Let me begin. I often get asked by cis folks what I do for work, and it's a sensitive question for me. As a black trans woman, I find my anxiety rising when I hear those words. Because our society is so centered around work, my mind goes into this state of questioning myself about why I'm not working, even while I know it's not for lack of trying. Even worse, these questions remind me of all the workplace trauma I have faced. The fact of not having consistent work sometimes weighs on me heavily. It is a gorilla on my back and I feel it pressing down with full force. It doesn't have to be this way, but as most trans people will tell you, it is. Getting and keeping jobs that provide a stable and healthy environment is a true and ongoing challenge for those of us in the trans community. And when you add blackness to transness, the hills we climb get steeper. The Application For me, finding employment is difficult and can be an uncomfortable experience. Pulling out my laptop on a daily basis and surfing job sites for work is my full-time job at the moment. I come across several applications every day, and I find myself getting frustrated when I'm filling them out. For example, I have to put in my government or legal name with a red asterisk. I have seen applications where sexuality is linked with which gender you identify as. On one application, the drop-down options for gender identity had gay, lesbian, bisexual, and transsexual. Sexuality and gender are not the same and should never be grouped together. It is also important to note that transsexual is an outdated term that is highly inappropriate and offensive. It's as if these companies have not put in any effort at being educated about my community. The Interview Once an application is accepted and I have an interview, it can be a grueling experience. When people contact me for an interview, they don't always understand that I'm a black trans woman. They often find out during our first contact. These first interviews are always a telling time for me. During one interview, a cis man told me that he was going to struggle to get my pronouns right. He tried to guilt trip me by saying, quote, I don't mean any harm and I should get some slack for trying. Obviously, I didn't move forward with that job. 
In another interview, I was asked by a cis woman, are you fully a woman yet? And have you had the surgery yet? I was put in a situation where I had to explain to her that being trans is forever and does not coincide with body parts. I've lived and worked in Colorado and California since starting my transition at the end of 2019, and I've yet to work somewhere without being discriminated against. I have never had a trans or non-binary manager, which is a major issue for a trans woman. How can this problem ever be solved if my community is not able to move up in the workforce? These employers don't know the daily struggle we trans folks face even just to get to work without harassment, aggression, or microaggression. Then, once we are there, we are being disrespected and ridiculed. I clock in and get misgendered by customers and co-workers. I share my pronouns and refer to myself as Miss Lola just to still be called Sir. I have been laughed at and scoffed at on the job simply for expecting people to recognize me as my true self. It's brutal and mentally exhausting. Have you ever seen a workplace advertise itself as LGBTQ plus friendly or inclusive? Have you seen a workplace claim that, quote, we thrive to make our workplace as diverse as possible? I have often come across these promises when applying for jobs. The terminology has lured me in just for me to be exposed to an unsafe, uncomfortable or toxic work environment. I found that workplace in the U.S. for a black trans woman can be cold and cruel. I find it ironic that jobs give out pronoun badges and pins. Why? Because the CEOs of a lot of these corporations funnel money into anti-LGBTQ organizations and political candidates. She, her are my pronouns, and I've worn these pins and badges just to get called he, him, which is harmful and violent. I've worked several jobs in both the apartment leasing and food service industries. I've found that when you work in a place where customers and vendors can just walk in, you're on a very high risk of being misgendered. You cannot control who walks in. It does not matter if you have a huge pride sticker or flag. There are just some people who will not acknowledge your gender identity. For this reason, every job has negatively triggered my gender dysphoria. Comments about my appearance are a constant thing I had to deal with. I once presented a solution at one of my jobs here in L.A. about tweaking the dress code so that trans women could feel more comfortable in the workplace. They refused to consider any alternatives, and I felt they weren't willing to hear me at all because they don't understand the pain and frustration of gender dysphoria. In some jobs, I have even been reprimanded by managers about perceived dress code violations. It felt like they wanted to box me in and not let me express my womanhood. Living in a society where you have to work in order to survive feels like climbing Mount Everest. The United States is plagued by racial capitalism, which sets a precedent for a transphobic and racist work world. There are people in my community who live on the streets and are in dire situations because they aren't able to find jobs. Currently, I am unemployed and still searching for part or full-time work. I have had interviews that are video and in-person. None of those companies has hired me or moved forward with my application, despite the fact that I'm fully qualified and have good references. At the end of the day, the reality is that my job choices are limited. Like I said earlier, many employers won't hire me 
because of anti-trans and anti-black biases. And if I do get hired, many workplaces will not accept me for me. I want to see a world where my trans sisters, trans brothers, and I can thrive in safe workplaces. Trans visibility is vital for the survival of my community. True equality and equity will only ever come when my community is thriving and integrated into our society, giving us equal access to employment and actually hiring us is crucial to that. Give us the same opportunities as that of cisgendered individuals, and you'll see the many ways we can contribute, innovate, and create. The workplace in the capitalist society is terrible for lots of different reasons, and that article pointed out some of the ways in which some individuals have an even harder time than others. In this next piece published at jacobin.com, Mia Tokumitsu talks about some of the other areas in the workplace, some of the other expectations in the workplace that can cause us harm. The ceaselessly productive worker with little time for rest, let alone any need or desire for it, stands today as a heroic icon, particularly in the high-strung white-collar milieus of Silicon Valley and Wall Street. The desired persona is one that transcends needs for sleep, care, relationships, and any other obligation that might distract from work and profit. In this world, legendary figures are the ones who remain in their office for 100 hours straight, working through their children's musical recitals, and 104-degree fevers. The idea is that workers become superhuman through the refusal of self-care. This phenomenon isn't merely depressing, it's outright dangerous. In 2013, a 21-year-old intern at Bank of America Merrill Lynch's London office died suddenly. He had been working until 6 a.m. for three consecutive days. In the summer of 2014, a long-haul truck driver overturned his vehicle on the New Jersey Turnpike, severely injuring comedian Tracy Morgan and killing a companion of Morgan's. The truck driver had not slept in more than 24 hours. Less headline-grabbing are the more mundane degradations that overwork and sleep deprivation visit on the body, increased rates of illness, anxiety, depression, even coronary heart disease. All of these instances, from sudden untimely deaths to worn-out immune systems, unable to fend off another cold, are the consequences of the extent to which we've allowed work to dominate our lives. Outside the pantheon of high-earning superworkers, everyone is getting less sleep and working longer hours. In industries from medicine to long-haul trucking, grinding schedules that colonize ever more of our waking and sleeping hours, are a point of pride. This is the case despite the fact that studies continually show that overwork is counterproductive. There are numerous reasons for the disappearance of the 40-hour work week, but journalist Sarah Robinson singles out work cultures that promote worker passion as one of them. She sees this culture taking root first in the defense and then in the tech industries in the late 20th century California. During the Cold War, defense companies like Lockheed in the Santa Clara Valley 
drew scores of ambitious scientists. These workers seemed to share certain personality traits, including social awkwardness, emotional detachment, and namely, a single-mindedness about their work to the point at which, quote, they devoted every waking hour to it, usually to the exclusion of non-work relationships, exercise, sleep, food, and even personal care. In the late 50s, Lockheed's own company psychologist created a label for this particular bundle of traits, the Psy-Tech personality. Managers had found a type of worker who gladly put aside, seemingly for the long term, non-work desires and obligations, and even the most basic physical needs of hygiene and sleep. These workers were branded not as worrisome, but as, quote, passionate. With all the positive connotations of that word. And by the 1980s, a valley full of passionate workers was fertile ground for a burgeoning tech industry. Passionate overworkers like Steve Jobs became icons, not just to tech workers, but also to the culture at large. With passion as a new workplace requirement, it needed to be measured in some way so that the passion of individual workers could be compared and used to mete out rewards and punishments. Enter the managers, who resorted to the laziest, most easily graphable, least imaginative way possible to gauge this intangible quality. Hours spent in the office. This intractable policy remains largely in place today. We just don't know any other way to measure workers except by their hours, an office manager sighed to a team of workplace consultants in 2014. This exasperation was aired a year after the consultants did a study of the same workplace, which revealed that employees were more productive when encouraged to take intermittent breaks and were, gasp, permitted to leave as soon as they had accomplished a designated amount of work. Passion as measured by hours has put the work week on a course of runaway inflation, to the point at which people are actually shortening their lives and endangering others, sometimes in sudden tragic form, in pursuit of an ever-elusive ideal of capitalistic individualism. Why do we allow ourselves to continue like this? If according to the do-what-you-love ethic, the pleasure of work derives from the very act of production, what are workers doing during all of those surplus hours when they are not, well, producing or producing only poorly? Why are salaried workers lingering in the office after their work is done or when they are beyond the point of meaningful production, only making themselves less effective in the long term? The answer clearly has nothing to do with economic rationality and everything to do with ideology. Although simple Excel charts may present the flimsiest guise of empirical objective data about workers' supposed passion, the truth is that passion doesn't equal hours spent in the office, nor does it necessitate burning oneself out. Passion is all too often a cover for overwork cloaked in the rhetoric of self-fulfillment. The falsity of passion as hours logic is that quite simply it produces shoddy work, which is not what someone who is ostensibly passionate about his or her work would allow. Emphasizing passion as a value in employees diminishes other potential, seemingly obvious, attitudes towards work that have more to bear on the quality of the work itself, things like competence and good faith. 
Passion, overwork, and 24-7 temporality are linked together by much more than the need for simple managerial metrics. Carl Sederstrom and Peter Fleming argue that work today is of such a nature that it exploits workers not only during their time in the workplace, but also in their very act of living. Employers seek to capture our, quote, human qualities like social intelligence, reciprocity, communication, and shared initiative. They add the traditional point of production, say the factory assembly line, is scattered to every corner of our lives since it is now our very sociality that creates value for business. This logic applies to nearly every level of the workforce, from the public face an executive provides for his corporation, to barista small talk. When personal authenticity is demanded every moment at work, quote, our authenticity is no longer a retreat from the mandatory fakeness of the office, but the very medium through which work squeezes the life out of us. If everyone is always working anyway, and the distinctions between our work and non-work selves are muddled, staying in the office for an extra hour or three doesn't seem a terribly significant decision. And when a worker has internalized a do-what-you-love ethic, it hardly seems like a decision at all. And picking up on one of the themes in that piece about long hours, here's a piece published at CNBC.com written by Bob Sullivan. Nearly half of U.S. workers say they routinely put in more than 50 hours on the job each week, often without overtime pay. But employers should probably start politely declining the free gift new research suggests. So-called work martyrs give hundreds of hours in free labor to their employers every year, encouraged by always-on gadgets, work through nights, weekends, and vacations. Trading sleep for fun for unpaid work is obviously a bad deal for employees, but there's a growing body of evidence that even apparently free labor might not be a good deal for employers either. Research that attempts to quantify the relationship between hours worked and productivity found that employee output falls sharply after a 50-hour work week and falls off a cliff after 55 hours, so much so that someone who puts in 70 hours produces nothing more with those extra 15 hours, according to a study published last year by John Pentevel of Stanford University. Longer hours have also been connected to absenteeism and employee turnover. The Centers for Disease Control and Prevention even have an entire website devoted to the effects of long working hours, even if workers aren't paid for this extra time. It's not free, Pentevel points out. Quote, there are ancillary costs of long working hours, such as the expenses of running complementary machinery and of providing light, heat, ventilation, and supervisory labor, he said in the study. The idea that work hours can be cut without a drop in productivity should be good news for both American workers and their bosses, who routinely put in more hours than seem productive. In a Gallup poll last year, four in ten Americans said they work more than 50 hours every week, and two in ten more than 60 hours. The average work week was 47 hours. Despite the research, don't expect Americans to be better about getting home for dinner anytime soon. Not only are hours worked per week on the rise, 
but technology seems to be irresistibly driving the trend. A recent Pew survey found that 35% of adults say the internet, email, and cell phones have increased their hours worked. For office workers, the number rises to 47%. Also contributing to this non-virtuous cycle of overwork, employees are trading sleep for work. Researchers at the University of Pennsylvania Perlman School of Medicine examined detailed time use studies and found that people who said they slept six hours or less at night worked 1.5 hours more than others who got more sleep. The evidence that time spent working was the most prominent sleep thief was overwhelming, lead study author Matthias Basner said when the results were released last month. It was evident across all sociodemographic strata and no matter how we approach the question. Sleep deprivation is also a productivity killer, but Pensacola's research more directly addresses productivity declines as a function of hours worked. He used a unique data set from a World War I munitions factory where productivity was easy to measure and the need for output was infinite. Pensacola's real contribution comes in spotting the productivity cliff. Other research has demonstrated more hours don't necessarily equal more results, but his research suggests a natural limit to work days and work weeks. Pensable calls it highly nonlinear effect. Quote, At 35 hours, an additional 5 hours to the length of the working week has consequences for the effective labor input that are quite different from an additional 5 hours starting at 48 hours, he writes. Of course, working at a munitions factory isn't the same as working in an office. For starters, productivity measures are far more elusive for knowledge workers. But Basner's research builds on plenty of other evidence about the futility of overwork. While short bursts of intense work with overtime can be productive and aren't always harmful, in the long run, excessive hours are counterproductive. The simple reality is that work, both mental and physical, results in fatigue that limits the cognitive and bodily resources people have to put towards their work, said Ken Meadows, Senior Director of Research at the Families and Work Institute Think Tank. When they are not thinking clearly or moving as quickly or precisely, they must work more slowly to maintain quality and safety requirements. It's not fair to blame overwork exclusively on employers or middle managers. Plenty of workers bring it on themselves. In her book, What the Most Successful People Do on the Weekend, Laura Vanderkam argues that many workers simply lack the self-discipline to set proper boundaries between work and home and to finish all the non-emergency work tasks between 9 a.m. and 5 p.m. Others thrive on the sense of self-importance they feel from working late or on the weekends. You have to set an appointment to get off the grid as surely as go on it, she wrote. And employers are hardly ignoring the issue. Work-life balance programs are in vogue, and they are celebrated cases of executives like Facebook's Sheryl Sandberg being very public about their efforts to be home for dinner, notes Russell Clayton, a management professor at St. Leo University. Many firms fail, however, because the efforts are largely symbolic. Quote, There's oftentimes a disconnect between the company mantra and the standards supervisors are holding their employees to, he said. For example, company XYZ's top executive comes out, says that he or she makes it a point to leave each workday by 5.30 p.m. and believes each of his or her employees should do the same. 
but if my immediate supervisor at company XYZ doesn't see value in that, then it is unlikely that I'll have the freedom to routinely leave at a reasonable hour. It's similar to the way companies will have family-friendly policies such as flex time or work from home. The policy is there, but if your direct supervisor doesn't allow you to use it, it's useless. At least as useless as those unpaid overtime hours workers put in after falling off the productivity cliff. And here's a somewhat complimentary study or a piece about a complimentary study. This is also from CNBC.com. This piece is written by Sophie Kitterlin. Quote, I would never go back. Olivia Messer, a graphic designer at a digital marketing agency, Literal Human, says about the move from a standard five-day work week to a four-day work week. I absolutely love it. I definitely find that I have a lot more motivation and energy to work on the days that I am working, Messer said. It's a much better work-life balance. Instead of going to work on Fridays, Messer said she now goes swimming and uses the extra day to take care of personal administration, including trips to the bank. Her employer, Literal Humans, is taking part in the biggest ever four-day workweek trial that has been running in the UK for the past three months. It is being run by the four-day week global campaign, which has also started a trial in New Zealand and Australia, and will be launching more in the US, Canada, and Europe later this year and in early 2023. The premise is simple. Workers get 100% of their pay for 80% of their working hours, while trying to keep their output and productivity at the same level as before. So far, this is working for literal humans, says William Gadsby Pete, the agency's co-founder and chief strategy officer. More often than not, our external clients and external stakeholders don't really notice any change in their service, Gadsby Pete says. They really, really don't see any drop in sort of our deliverables or productivity. There is, however, always someone on call on Friday for client emergencies. The team also adjusts its schedule if necessary, Gadsby Pete said. For example, someone may work on a Friday and take the following Monday off. Keeping clients and external stakeholders happy is not just a concern for literal humans. Simon Yersel, Managing Director at Environmental Consultancy Tyler Grange, told CNBC that his company surveyed and spoke to their 100 biggest clients ahead of time to mitigate any concerns. Most had concerns, most were curious and interested, and were a bit concerned about what might happen. But we had one who was definitely anti, said, no, if you do that, I'm not going to use you. But that client, quite interestingly, now does use us a heck of a lot, he said. Yourself said communicating frequently with clients and proving to them that their needs will still be met was a key to keeping them on board. It wasn't just clients that Tyler Grain spent months preparing for the change before committing to the trial. Some of their employees were also skeptical about how they would get the same amount of work done in less time. Automating processes was the solution for Tyler Grange. We kind of declared war on admin. You shouldn't have to upload and download things. You shouldn't have to format things. You shouldn't have to do lots of processing for invoicing, Yersel said, noting that eradicating these small tasks freed up a lot of time overall. At Literal Humans, some employees initially worked overtime between Monday and Thursday to make up for the lost day. 
They were happy to do so in exchange for the long weekend, but quickly realized this just added stress and therefore defeated the purpose of the four-day work week. Quote, the whole idea of the trial is not to have to compensate for the extra day off. So for me, my first step was reducing the amount of time you work for by working extra and the amount of time you do work and reducing distractions in your environment, said Aditya Narayan, content strategist at Literal Humans. Being away from his personal phone, only listening to instrumental music, and working in a co-working space rather than a cafe helped him become more efficient. Like Literal Humans' Messer, many employees told CNBC that they enjoyed the better work-life balance the four-day work week gives them. But while they may have gained time to take up new hobbies, take care of personal admin, and socialize outside of work, employees at a software, at software company Sensat said they missed chatting with colleagues on coffee breaks and having office socials on Fridays. That's probably been the overwhelming thing that's come out initially, is like we're losing our social element by trying to be too efficient, said Sophie Martin, a senior people partner at Sensat. So we're just kind of changing the way we used to do it and kind of adapting some new ways. The company now has monthly all-hands days that mix socializing with work rather than weekly happy hours and tries to plan social activities during working hours further in advance to allow employees to plan their work around them. Literal Humans Tyler Grange and Sensat all said they were hopeful about continuing with the four-day week after the trial ends. They acknowledge that there have been hurdles and challenges, but they put this down to solvable teething issues. And even if productivity and output aren't exactly the same as before, literal humans Gadsby Pete said he believes the trade-off works. I'd far rather lose 5% of productivity and increase the happiness of my workforce by 50% and really bring in a lot more talent. We've gone in very open-eyed about downsides and we've worked our asses off to mitigate those. But the benefits massively, massively outweigh the cons. So there are ways that work can be restructured. And this is a very small way that work can be restructured with really no loss, no, no significant loss of productivity, no significant loss of output um, by restructuring in certain ways. I mean, personally, I think we've got everything upside down. I think we should be working for the common goods and common needs about uh, three days a week and having five days a week to service ourselves and our communities. Next up is a piece by Julia Connolly. This is uh, honoring Barbara Ehrenreich, who recently passed away. Barbara Ehrenreich uh, famously focused a lot of her um, research and writing on work and on the problems of work in a capitalist society. This piece is by Julia Conley and is published at commondreams.org. Barbara Ehrenreich, whose books about economic inequality include Nickel and Dimed, Bait and Switch, and Fear of Falling, died on Thursday, September 1, at the age of 81. Her death was announced on Twitter by her son, Ben Ehrenreich, and daughter, Rosa Brooks. Quote, She was never much for thoughts and prayers, but you can honor her memory by loving one another and by fighting like hell, Ben Ehrenreich wrote. 
Ehrenreich wrote on her personal website that she went through a political as well as personal transformation in 1970 when she gave birth to her first child in a public health clinic in New York, where she was the only white patient at the clinic and learned how many poor women are treated when seeking health care. They induced my labor because it was late in the evening and the doctor wanted to go home, she later said. I was enraged. The experience made me a feminist. She wrote columns for Ms. and Mother Jones and published several books about the healthcare industry, feminism, and the economy before writing one of her best-known works, Nickel and Dimed, an examination of the working poor in the United States. Ehrenreich took low-wage jobs at a restaurant, a cleaning service, and Walmart between 1998 and 2000 and experienced firsthand the struggles faced by millions of Americans attempting to afford housing, groceries, and other necessities while earning minimum wage at corporations headed by wealthy executives. The working poor, as they are approvingly termed, are in fact the major philanthropists of our society, Ehrenreich wrote in the book. In a review of the book, the New York Times said Nickel and Dimed helped solidify Ehrenreich as, quote, our premier reporter of the underside of capitalism. We have Barbara Ehrenreich to thank for bringing us the news of America's working poor so clearly and directly and conveying it with a deep moral outrage and a finely textured sense of lives as lived, Dorothy Gallagher wrote for the Times. In some of her other books, Ehrenreich delved into the shrinking of the U.S. middle class, the history of communal celebrations, and Americans' obsession with wellness and the prolonging of life. Quote, We've lost a gifted writer and a relentless fighter for the working class, said progressive organizer Aaron Huertas. Ehrenreich also established the Economic Hardship Reporting Project, which supports independent journalists editorially and financially. I have never seen a conflict between journalism and activism, she wrote at her personal website. As a journalist, I search for the truth, but as a moral person... I am also obliged to do something about it. And here is a piece written by Barbara Ehrenreich and Bill Fletcher Jr. This is Reimagining Socialism. This is published at theragblog.com. If you haven't heard socialists doing much crowing over the fall of capitalism, it isn't just because there aren't enough of us to make an audible crowing sound. We, as much as anyone on Wall Street in, say, 2006, appreciate the resilience of American capitalism, its ability to regroup and find fresh avenues for growth, as it did after the depressions of 1877, 1893, and the 1930s. In fact, the Communist Manifesto can be read not only as an indictment of capitalism, but as a breathless pain to its dynamism. And we all know the joke about the Marxist economist who successfully predicted 11 out of the last three recessions. But this time the patient may not get up from the table, no matter how many times the electroshock paddles of stimulus are applied. We seem to have entered the death spiral, where rising unemployment leads to reduced consumption and hence to greater unemployment. Any schadenfreude we might be tempted to feel as executives lose their corporate jets 
and the erstwhile masters of the universe wipe egg from their faces, is quickly dashed by the ever more vivid suffering around us. Food pantries and shelters can no longer keep up with the demand. Millions face old age without pensions and with their savings gutted. We personally are consumed with anxiety about the future that awaits our children and grandchildren. Besides, it wasn't supposed to happen this way. There was supposed to be a revolution, remember? The socialist idea, prediction, faith, or whatever, was that capitalism would fall when people got tired of trying to live on the crumbs that fall from the chins of the rich and rose up in some fashion, preferably inclusively, democratically, and nonviolently, and seized the wealth for themselves. Such a seizure would have looked nothing like nationalization as currently discussed, in which public wealth flows into the private sector with little or no change in the elites that control it, or in the way the control is exercised. Our expectation as socialists was that the huge amount of organizing required for revolutionary change would create an infrastructure for governance, built out of, among other puzzle pieces, unions, community organizations, advocacy groups, and new organizations of the unemployed and nouveau poor. It was also supposed to be a simple matter for the masses to take over or seize the physical infrastructure of industrial capitalism, the means of production, and start putting it to work for the common good. But much of the means of production has fled overseas to China, for example, that bastion of authoritarian capitalism. When we look around our increasingly shuttered landscape and survey the ruins of finance capitalism, we see bank upon bank, realty and mortgage companies, title companies, insurance companies, credit rating agencies, and call centers. But not enough enterprises making anything we could actually use, like food or pharmaceuticals. In recent years, capitalism has become increasingly and almost mystically abstract. Outside manufacturing and the service sector, fewer and fewer people could explain to their children what they did for a living. The brightest students went into finance, not physics. The biggest urban buildings housed cubicles and computer screens, not assembly lines, laboratories, studios, or classrooms. Even our flagship industry, manufacturing autos, would require major retooling to make something we could use. Not more cars, let alone more SUVs, but more windmills, buses, and trains. What is most galling from a socialist perspective is the dawning notion that capitalism may be leaving us with less than it found on this planet. About 400 years ago, when the capitalist mode of production began to take off. Marx imagined that the industrial capitalism had potentially solved the age-old problem of scarcity and that there was plenty to go around if only it was equitably distributed. But industrial capitalism, with some help from industrial communism, has brought about a level of environmental destruction that threatens our species along with countless others. The climate is warming, the oil supply is peaking, the deserts are advancing, and the seas are rising and contain fewer and fewer fish for us to eat. You don't have to be a freaky doomster to see that extinction may be what's next on the agenda. In this situation, with both long-term biological and day-to-day -day economic survival in doubt, the only relevant question is, do we have a plan, people? Can we see our way out of this and into a just, democratic, sustainable, add-your-own-favorite-adjectives future? Let's just put it right out on the table. We don't. 
At least we don't have some blueprint on how to organize society ready to whip out of our pockets. Lest this sound negligent on our part, we should explain that socialism was an idea about how to rearrange ownership and distribution and to an extent governance. It assumed that there was a lot worth owning and distributing. It did not imagine having to come up with an entirely new and environmentally sustainable way of life. Furthermore, the history of socialism has been disfigured by too many cadres who had a perfect plan if only they could win the next debate, carry out a coup, or get enough people to fall into line behind them. But we do understand, and this is one of the things that make us socialists, that the absence of a plan or at least some sort of deliberative process for figuring out what to do is no longer an option. The great promise of capitalism, as first suggested by Adam Smith and recently enshrined in market fundamentalism, was that we didn't have to figure anything out because the market would take care of everything for us. Instead of promoting self-reliance, this version of free enterprise fostered passivity in the face of that inscrutable deity, the market. Deregulate, let wages fall to their quote natural level, turn what remains of government into an endless source of bounty for contractors. We, well that hasn't worked and the core idea of socialism still stands, that people can get together and figure out how to solve their problems or at least a lot of their problems collectively. That we, not the market or the capitalist or some elite group of uber planners, have to control our own destiny. We admit we don't even have a plan for the deliberative process that we know has to replace the anarchic madness of capitalism. Yes, we have some notion of how it should work based on our experiences with the civil rights movement, the women's movement, and the labor movement, as well as with countless cooperative enterprises. This notion centers on what we still call participatory democracy, in which all voices are heard and all people equally respected. But we have no precise models of participatory democracy on the scale that is currently called for, involving hundreds of millions and potentially billions of participants at a time. What might this look like? There are some intriguing models to study, like the Brazilian Workers' Party famous experiments in developing a participatory budget in Porto Alegre. Z Magazine founder Michael Albert developed a detailed approach to mass-based planning that he calls participatory economics, or Paracon. And one of us, Fletcher in his book Solidarity Divided, written with Fernando Gapison, has proposed a locally-based network of people's assemblies. But all this is experimental, and we realize that any system for mass democratic planning will be messy. It will stumble. It will be wrong sometimes, and there will be a lot of running back to the drawing board. But as socialists, we know the spirit in which this great project of collective salvation must be undertaken, and that spirit is solidarity. An antique notion until very recently, it flickered into life again in the symbolism and energy of the Obama campaign. The Yes We Can chant was a slogan of the United Farm Workers Movement and went on to be adopted by various unions and community-based organizations to emphasize that large numbers of people can accomplish through collective action. If the idea of democratic planning of controlling our destiny is the intellectual content of socialism, then solidarity is its emotional energy source. The moral understanding and the searing conviction that, however overwhelming the challenges, we are in this together. 
Solidarity, though, is an empty sentiment without organization, ways of thinking and working together, and of connecting the social movements that are battling injustice every day. We see a tremendous opportunity in the bleak fact that millions of Americans have been rendered redundant by the capitalist economy and are free to dedicate their considerable talents to creating a more just and sustainable alternative. But if we are serious about collective survival in the face of our multiple crises, we have to build organizations, including explicitly socialist ones, that can mobilize this talent, develop leadership, and advance local struggles. And we have to be serious because the capitalist elites who have run things so far have forfeited all trust or even respect, and we, progressives of all stripes, are now the only grown-ups around. And as you heard with that mention of Obama in there, this piece was written uh, or appeared, published originally in the March 2009 edition of The Nation. That's the March 13, 2009 edition of The Nation. A lot has transpired since. More ups and downs. Uh, capitalism and unemployment is not at the levels it was in 2009 in the the midst or the throes of the recession at that time. Um, and unemployment as the government measures it is not a very good measure of people's participation in the workforce. That will wrap up this episode of You Can't Be Neutral. Uh, you can follow on Twitter at YCB Neutral. You can find out more at YouCan'tBeNeutral.com where you'll find all the back episodes. And now, a moment of Zen. Thanks for listening. My job here is to um, briefly open up very big questions like capitalism versus socialism, uh, things like that. Um, you have four and minutes for that question. I want to point out that um, something wasn't sufficiently noticed is that 2008, which was the year of the global financial meltdown, was also the 160th anniversary of the Communist Manifesto's publication. <laughs> and who knew that the capitalists were going to celebrate that anniversary by shooting themselves? <laughs> you know, it's. Um, you know, and I, I would be, it, it, it's always folly to say this is the end of capitalism. Capitalism is, it, you have to admire it. It's so dynamic, it's so resilient. You know, you push it down, it comes back, it's, it's terrific in that way. And we all know the joke about the Marxist economist who pre correctly predicted uh, 11 out of the last three recessions. You know, so I'm, I'm very cautious about it. But it's just, for now, capitalism is not working. It's not working anymore. And, um, you know, that's why there's suddenly talk of socialism. Suddenly, uh, Obama is being tarred as a socialist. And I say with great respect for the man and not wishing to hurt his feelings or anything, but Barack Obama is not a socialist, all right? You know, um, it, I think, you know, at the very least, uh, what we have to shake off at this moment is the curious religion, and I call it a religion, that Americans have been in the grip of for years, uh, and that is market fundamentalism. The, it, the market as a deity 
that will take care of everything for us so that we can, you know, eventually uh, all the deserving poor will be wealthy, according to market fundamentals. Eventually, everything will be okay. Now, that has been, has had the, the quality of a religious belief in this country without, you know, without, of course, evidence. And it's, but instead of promoting self-reliance as it was advertised to, I think it has fostered a kind of collective passivity in our uh, culture, that you don't really have to worry about so many injustices and so many forms of human misery because eventually the invisible hand will come down and smooth all brows and, and to everything. Now, you know, see, if that doesn't work, then it seems to me very simply that the alternative to that religious delusion of market fundamentalism is to determine our own destiny as human beings, to realize that there's not something called the market that's going to do it for us. Um, and I'd say that is the essence to me of what the socialist legacy is. It's this idea, very simple idea, that people can get together and figure out solutions to problems together. You know, that you're not waiting for something uh, else to do it for you. That's, that's really, you know, what, what seems to me so resoundingly inspiring about 19th century socialism and what it leaves to us. But we have a much harder situation uh, than they faced, I think, in the mid-19th century, um, say, European worker, workers' movements. You know, they, they thought at that time that industrial capitalism had done this great thing that had potentially eliminated scarcity from the world. You know, because all, you, you know, you can make all this stuff. And the only thing that socialists had to do was take over those means of production and make sure that the stuff got distributed in a better way so that everybody had enough. That was the project of socialism. Now, 160 years later, we can no longer sit back and applaud capitalism for producing unlimited plenty and abundance. In fact, when we look at the world, we have to, we have to come to the very sad realization that we are left by capitalism than, with less than what we started with in many ways. That the environmental damage, not only of industrial capitalism, but of industrial so, uh, communism too, I should say, you know, has left us so depleted of so many resources and in danger on so many fronts that I don't think it is crazy or paranoid to say that our, our species uh, faces a threat of extinction as possibility. So I'm just going to wind up by saying, um, <laughs> leaving you with that, um, no, is that it's, 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 not, it's, it's not simply a matter of changing ownership so the people uh, own the means of production or something like that. It is a matter of rethinking what we mean by production and our entire way of life.